Thanks for joining us for First College Ministries College Worship Gathering. We hope that what you hear will encourage you and challenge you to be more like Jesus in your everyday lives. If you're a college student in the Tuscaloosa area, please join us Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. for college worship. You can learn more about First College Ministry at firstcollegeministry.org. Could you guys do me a favor and give our band a big thank you? I happen to be a little biased, but I think we have an incredible worship team here, and I'm super grateful for them and their gifts. <laughs> well, hello again, everyone. I'm glad you guys are here for our first college worship of the year. I, yeah, someone's excited. Not just me. Yeah. I know we've already had all the hype of like the giveaways and stuff, but that's all right. Um, if I haven't had the chance to meet you personally yet, my name is R.J. Voorhees, and I have the privilege and honor of serving as college pastor here for First College Ministry and for First Baptist Church. Um, and I would love to connect with you following our time together. And I just want to let you know, before you leave tonight, please come see us down in the student building because we have a gift for everyone. All right, so make sure you come see us. Uh, tonight, we begin a series called Gospels where we are going to explore the truth of the gospel in the four gospels of the New Testament and in the book of Romans. So over the next several Tuesday nights, we'll take a glimpse into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul's epistle to the Romans, and see just how the truth of the gospel is spelled out and elaborated upon in each of those respective accounts. Now as we begin, I want to just clarify what I mean, what we mean here at First College Ministry and at First Baptist Tuscaloosa when we use this term, gospel. The word gospel comes from a Greek word that means good news. Many of you probably know this. And it's related to the news that a herald, you know, so a king's herald, would relay or bring of one's country or king's successes upon the battlefield. In other words, it was news that everyone wanted to hear because at that point in time, they did not have 24-7 news channels. They had to wait on someone to come give them news. And this herald would always precede the returning party. But for the church historic, and what I mean by that, the community throughout time of those who have followed Jesus, have placed their faith in Jesus for their salvation, this term, gospel, has a much more meaningful definition. The gospel is indeed good news, there's no question. In fact, I would say it's the most incredible news, but it is news that supersedes news of battleground victories. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has actually conquered sin and death. And I want to invite you right now to not be Baptist, okay? You can get loud. You can get a little responsive in here. It's okay. We're comfortable with one another because this is a safe space. This is incredible news. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has actually conquered sin and death. Amen. There we go. <laughs> it should. Sin is this natural state of every human heart. And it's our birthright, dating back to the time when Adam and Eve rejected the authority that God had over their lives, scoffing at his love and his desire to be in relationship with him. From the time of that rejection on, humanity has dealt with the dark effects of sin. We care more for ourselves than we do others. We harbor hate in our hearts. We put others down so that we can put ourselves up. We exhibit greed, pride, etc. All of these are forms and proof of sin which is really just the reality of our hearts separated from the one who created us, a result of our rejection of God. Because of our sin, this rejection of God, our relationship with God was broken and we needed it to be made whole. 
And this is where the good news comes in. The gospel is the incredible news that God did not see fit to leave us stranded in the midst of our despair, depravity, and sin. No, he sent his only son, Jesus, to be born of a virgin, live a perfectly sinless life, and to die on an incredibly brutal cross, to bear the weight and debt of our sin, to pay for our collective rejection of God. Not only did he die for our sins, three days later he was resurrected, completely conquering the effects of sin, which is spiritual and physical death. In Jesus, you and I have access to the God of all creation. We are made new and we have right relationship with him if we put our trust and faith in him. This is the good news that we mean when we say gospel. So I want that to stick in your mind. Because the gospel is the foundation of all that we hold dear here. But especially as every follower of Jesus in this world. Because it's the truth of our redemption. It's the greatest exhibition of selfless love that time has ever known. Because of this... We wanted to explore how the gospel is taught and how it's depicted as impacting our lives throughout the New Testament, especially in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and of course, in the epistle to the Romans. But tonight, I want us to begin our journey by exploring the surprising gospel kingdom in the book of Matthew. So before we read our passage for tonight, I just want to give you a bit of context of where we'll be, because we're not going to be covering the whole book of Matthew, so you can breathe a sigh of relief. We're not going to be here for, I don't know, 12 hours. But Matthew is written by the Apostle Matthew, a follower of Jesus, a disciple, one of the original 12. And his book, his letter, is geared toward a culturally Jewish audience. Beginning with a brief introduction regarding the birth and genealogy of Jesus, which is uniquely very Hebraic. And what I mean by that is he really relates Jesus to the hero of the Hebrew faith, Abraham, the father of the, the nation of Israel. And they are quickly brought into accounts of how Jesus calls his first disciples and begins educating them on how the kingdom of God actually changes everything. How it differs from the world around them, and how it differs from the world around us even today. Included in the course of very early chapters of Matthew, we have Jesus' magnum opus, this beautiful sermon that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. It covers three chapters, five, six, and seven, and he covers in that this upside-down kingdom versus the culture. And he covers what matters most in this life and the need for authentic faith. From there, we have more historical accounts that narrate Jesus' miraculous efforts when he heals people, and numerous other moments when he casts out demons where he's confronted by religious leaders of the day who are trying to undermine his authority. So to sum up everything that goes on before our passage this evening, Jesus comes and turns the known world upside down regarding cultural and spiritual expectations. He says, this is what you thought it was, this is what it actually is. All the while, he displays to countless people that he is indeed the Son of God, who has been given the authority to not only teach about spiritual truth, but ultimately to deliver spiritual truth. And what I mean by that is deliver himself as the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father except through him. Amen. So I realize that that was a decent amount of information, but I would like for us to turn our attentions now to our primary passage for tonight. So if you have a Bible, and I really do hope that you have one with you, either Physically or digitally, uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, beginning in chapter 20. If you do not have one with you, please do not worry. It will be on the screen. And if you would like a physical copy of God's Word, we have plenty to give you. (laughs) So please come see us after. We would love to give you one. So again, Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord according to Matthew. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. 
After agreeing with the labor, laborers for a denarius a day, which was just a day's wage, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those, who, those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, and let me just give you a hint here. When Jesus uses this word friend, he doesn't mean it like, oh, buddy. It's like, hey, listen, okay? There are a number of instances when he uses this word, and it's like, pay attention, because you're about to get some. All right, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be here together. And Lord, I just pray that you continue to be with us now, that you go before us in this text, that you would make a way for us. Lord, we ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. So for the remainder of our time tonight, I want us to explore the passage that we just read through the framework of some surprises of God's kingdom and then some applications that we can take away. So let's look at some surprises of God's kingdom. And I want to begin with the surprising landowner. What we just read is known as a parable. And what that means is it's really just a narrative form of teaching that Jesus would use to relay deep spiritual truths. It was a teaching method. In this parable, it's important to note the imagery that Jesus uses. It's actually pretty interesting. His parable revolves around a vineyard and its owner. And in the Old Testament, like Isaiah chapter 5, for example, the Lord would often compare his chosen people, the nation of Israel, to a vineyard and himself, the vineyard owner. This is important because Jesus' hearers, including his disciples, they would know this. They would know this imagery well. But unlike in Isaiah 5, where Judah and Israel act unjustly and the landowner actually gives the vineyard over to be destroyed, here... The landowner acts very strangely. Because in Jesus' time, landowners were typically very wealthy. They had to be to own the land, right? And had managers who would operate their fields and run their vineyards or their farms for them, including making sure that all of those granaries or vineyards, that they were staffed well. In other words, the landowners were wealthy enough to be hands-off, to let others do the grunt work for them. But in Jesus' parable, the landowner or the master of the house acts in a surprising fashion. Look with me again at how he describes him. And this is going to be in verses 1 through 7. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Let's just stop right there. Who went out? This is that crowd participation moment. It's on the screen. The landowner, yeah. He went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his harvest, or into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And then, and it goes on and on and on four or five times. 
In his parable, the master of the house is strange. He's atypical according to the regular cultural norms. He handles the business of his vineyard personally, and he seeks out those who need to be employed, those who need his help. He finds those who are eager to provide for their families and for themselves, and he agrees to fair terms for their day's labor, actually a pretty generous day's wage. He sends them out to his vineyard, but instead of just retiring to his villa and, you know, drinking some of the wine, the fruits of his labor, if you will, there you go, that's a freebie. He doesn't just put his feet up, and then groans throughout. (laughs) He doesn't just go and put his feet up. No, he goes out again and again and again. (laughs) He continues to see need, and he continues to provide opportunities for those in need. So Jesus shares in verses shares in verses six and seven that the master of the vineyard returns at the eleventh hour. And when that, what do we mean by that? Especially in the Jewish timetable, is this is the very last hour of the workday. There's one hour left before sunset. And the eleventh hour, and he goes back out and he asks those standing around why they are being idle, and what is their response to him? Because no one's hired us. In other words, because no one's seen fit to give us a chance or provide for us the means to make a living. No one seems to have seen us today. These day laborers, much like many we see in our day and age, worked day to day seeking to earn the means just to survive. And in Jesus' parable, we see a man who would typically never stoop to converse with day laborers. For his vineyard, he intentionally seeks them out. And not just once, but multiple times throughout the day, even up until the final working hour. And as he speaks to them, he grants them access to his field. What does he say? You go into the vineyard too. Our vineyard owner in this parable is atypical, surprisingly and wonderfully strange compared to the everyday landowner. And I find it interesting, too, this parallel, like I've already mentioned, in Isaiah 5. Because as I mentioned before, God accuses his people of being a worthless vineyard that isn't worth toiling over any longer. It's pretty stark language in Isaiah 5. He turns them over. He talks about the vineyard. He turns the vineyard over to be overrun with weeds, meaning he's like, I'm going to tear down the wall so that everything that's out here can come in here meaning you will no longer be protected. I will no longer protect you because you do not see me nor care about me nor want to keep my covenant. That's what happens in Isaiah 5. But here, in the midst of his people, because Jesus is in the midst of the chosen people of Israel, the Son of God, the very Son of God, shares with those listening this parable that God not only wants his vineyard to be worked, but he's making sure his very people are invited into his vineyard. Do you see this beautiful imagery? You have the vineyard, the people, but you have the people being invited to be the people again. Not only that, but those that were not Jewish by birth, being invited in because some of those day laborers would not be Jewish. He's building a people, and he doesn't want them to suffer. He doesn't want them to be abandoned. The vineyard owner provides a way for his people's survival. So that's one surprising thing we see. Secondly, I want us to see the surprising generosity of the landowner. So again, let's return to our passage, beginning in verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. We're not going to spend much time belaboring this point because I think it's pretty obvious. Um, I just wanted us to recognize how upside down the vineyard owner's actions are compared to the expectations of the day. He pays each laborer the same rate. 
And what is interesting is that in the earlier verses, we read that the owner agrees with the first laborers for a denarius a day, which is a generous day's wage. Many of your study Bibles will say, oh, this is a laborer's day wage. Yeah, but it was like a, you're a really skilled laborer. This is what you're going to get. Not a, I just found you on the street and I'm going to give you a job for a day type wage. The second shift, he tells, you go into the vineyard too, and here's really, really interesting words. And whatever is right, I will give you. Whatever is right, I will give you. The third shift, here's the same. And the fourth shift. But then those found at the 11th hour are just told to go to the vineyard. There are no stipulations. They're just saying, go. There's a sense in which these 11th hour workers are actually desperate. We can feel their anxiety and their worry. And you hear it in the words, because no one has hired us. Why? I mean, we can guess, but it's, is it too far-fetched to think that some of them may be somewhat ill, may have an injury, they may be too old or too marginalized to be seen as viable workers. Regardless, they are told to go to the vineyard and they obey. And then what happens? They receive their pay first. <laughs> they receive their pay first. And how much is it? It is a full denarius. I don't really know how to like equate that to our day and age, but it was nice, right? I mean, it was like, oh, sweet. It's a full denarius. Can you imagine? What if you were the 11th hour worker, desperately wondering how you would feed your family that night? If you would have a morsel of bread that you could purchase with any type of coin or anything that you would be able to survive the night and make it another day? What if you were that 11th hour worker and he came and then he paid you a full day's wage, a generous day's wage? You would be ecstatic. I would be ecstatic. What about the third and the sixth hour workers? What about the ninth hour? They too should be pretty ecstatic because they got a full day's wage for not working a full day. I imagine they had to be happy as well. And I think it's interesting to remember here the owner's words to these two groups, that they would receive whatever is right. And it begs the question, doesn't it? Who determines what is right in this instance? Is it the laborers? Here it is the one who has the resources to invite others to labor in his vineyard. And he does so and he shares generously. However, we also see, thirdly, the unsurprising reaction of the early workers. Read with me Matthew 20, verses 10 through 12. And now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. Anybody else going to be identifying with that right now? Just me? Okay, thank you. Jack, it's good to see you, bud. Glad you're back. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked... These last ones worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Again, here we're not going to spend too much time because isn't this so typical? We've seen the atypical landowner, but now we see the very typical reaction of a human heart. And if we're honest, isn't there a small, small part of you, if not a bigger part of you, that feels their pain in this moment and considers this a slight? That this might be some form of injustice? We're so influenced by the idea that the circumstances that we endure or go through individually are those that set the standard for others. I want to repeat that because I think this is a very meaningful thing for us in today's day and age. We are so influenced by the idea that the circumstances that we endure individually, that we go through individually, are those that set the standard for others. And it's because we are self-centered. It's because we are sinful people that the lens through which we view the world is always tainted by our selfishness and pride. 
we struggle to see past our own merit. And this is the crux of Jesus' parable here. And it leads me to my last detail. Number four, the surprising reality of the kingdom of God. So look with me again at verses 13 through 16. But he replied to one of them. Here it is again. Friend. (laughs) It's like your dad saying, son, daughter, or using your middle name. I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Those words, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Whew. Land on to bring in some fire. So the last will be first and the first last. What's really interesting is that this parable follows the interaction with the rich young ruler, as we call him. And in that interaction, you will remember that that person who knew everything about the law of God and sought to follow it to a T by his obedience still could not understand that he had an idolatry towards his money. And he left sad. And Jesus turned around and said, the first will be last and the last will be first. Talking about those that had much that they could have a hard time not worshiping what they had versus the one who gave it to them. And it carries on into this parable Because Jesus wants to identify for his disciples the truth of this. That it is based upon his generosity that those who need to be welcomed into the vineyard are welcomed into the vineyard. And there's so much that can be said regarding these last few verses. But I think we need to home in on what Jesus is relaying at like a macro level. So the truth of the matter is that no one who is invited into the kingdom of God is invited based upon what they bring to the table. These day laborers, they're not offering their resumes as he walks up to them. They're not saying, look at my CV here. I have a PhD in all of these things. Would you hire me? No, that's not it. They're there saying, I'm here. I'm here at the crack of dawn every day so that I might find work so that I might survive. They need help as much as they want to provide help to the person who hires them. And the truth of the matter is that no one who's invited to the kingdom of God is invited based upon what they bring to the table. The early laborers were not better qualified to be there or to earn more than what they agreed upon. They fulfilled what they were supposed to. They did not do the vineyard owner any favors. It's not like they just deigned to be there for him. They needed to be there. They were no more skilled than the others. They were just fortunate enough to have been chosen to work before coming to a place in the day where they felt the pressure and the anxiety and the desperation of possibly not getting hired. What's really interesting to me is that they seem to forget what the landowner actually preserved them from that day. They didn't have to go through those emotional distresses. They didn't have to go through those questions for that day about what would be provided for them, what they could provide for someone else that they care about. No, they just see what the others receive and begin doing worldly, self-focused, entitled mental math and expect to receive more because their longer-tenured efforts somehow qualify them for more. They had a little more sweat equity in the day, so they deserved more. Don't we do this all the time? Don't we look around at others and consider their merits and base judgments about ourselves and them on these things? Oh, if he was able to make it into such and such school, I can definitely get into where I want to go. I mean, bless him. Well, if she's making that much money coming out of school, then I should be able to do much better. My grades are A, B, or C, right? Our economy of merit only demeans others. 
Our economy of merit, our earthly economy of merit only demeans others, and the Lord knows this. It is why the shocking and surprising reality of his kingdom is that our acceptance into it has nothing, and let me repeat that, nothing to do with us or what we're able to accomplish. This is one of the most beautiful aspects of the gospel. You and I cannot earn our way into God's favor. We have nothing to offer. If our salvation were merit-based, we would all be bound for hell. In fact, we are without his invitation. Now, for some of us in the room who are type A, guilty, or even just really enjoy following the rules, typically guilty, I like to bend them occasionally, this parable and even the truth of the gospel, they may grate you a touch. They may irritate you. And you know why? It's because, and I'm this way too, so please do not get triggered. We are self-righteous deep down. We are self-righteous deep down. And I think we, everybody around us should follow the rules in order to earn favor. Because we're following the rules. We're doing it the right way. They're not doing it the right way, but they're still receiving the love of God. How is that fair? C.S. Lewis talks about the fairness of God. He talks about if we got what we really, really, truly deserved in fairness, we would, again, all be burning in hell. We feel we must qualify ourselves based upon our merits. In many ways, we feel like we do need to give God a resume and say, save me. But it brings us back to the parable. Who determines what is right and fair? The worker or the vineyard owner? Dane Orland He's a pastor and writer. He, he writes this in his book, Surprised by Jesus. He states, the one thing that qualifies you to be part of Jesus' kingdom or the kingdom of God is knowing that you don't qualify. And the one thing that disqualifies you is thinking that you do. <laughs> I love this. The one thing that qualifies you to be part of Jesus' kingdom is knowing that you don't qualify. And the one thing that disqualifies you is thinking that you do. The truth is, the early workers who grumble about their pay, the wages that they agreed to, remember, seem to forget that the landowner never had to hire them in the first place. It was his choice to invite them to his land and employ them. It was not their qualifications. It was not how great their hair looked that day. It was not how great or well their tunic was pressed. They were not dressed to impress. It was his invitation. It was not their qualifications. Michael Green, a Bible scholar and theologian, once wrote this about the parable that we read. All human merit shrivels before God's burning, self-giving love. I just want to repeat that. Can we read that together, actually? I mean, why not? All human merit shrivels before God's burning, self-giving love. Whew, let's put that on a t-shirt. Grace, amazing grace, is the burden of this story. All are equally undeserving of so large a sum as a denarius a day. All are given it by the generosity of the employer. All are on the same level. There are no rankings in the kingdom of God. Nobody can claim deserved membership in the kingdom. There is no place for personal pride, for contempt or jealousy, for there is no ground for any to question how this generous God handles the utterly undeserving. And it ends with just this. He is good. Amen. <laughs> he is good. Amen, right? This parable in Green's words remind me of a passage in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 and into 8 and 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he had for us, loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And continuing into 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift from God. As not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a freebie here. The idea here is we often confuse the timeline. We often think we have to do the work so that he sees that we're worth his attention. Where in fact, we are his, saved by grace, created for the good works that he has created us for. And Dane Orland, in his book, Surprised by Jesus, talks about this idea about disobedient obedience, meaning that you can be a very good religious person saying, I have all the Christian morality in the world, that if anybody looked at me externally said, that is a good Christian person, but you could also be blinding yourself to what it means to depend upon the Lord because you're actually depending upon your efforts. Just as much as you might look at the person who's completely and utterly disobedient to the morality that we see in the Bible. And say that they're going to hell in a handbasket, but look at what I'm doing. And Jesus says, you know what? You both don't trust in me. Neither one of you are welcome in the vineyard. It is not about the work. It is about the workmanship. It is about the one who created us for the work. We come to him by his mercy and through his grace. And we are saved through faith. And the reminder is that this is not our doing. It is the gift of God. Because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for those good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And if I may remind you that if God prepared you for those good works beforehand, he's known you all along. No matter your regrets, no matter your choices, no matter your sins, no matter your shame, he's known you, he still wants you, and he says, come. The surprising reality of the kingdom of God is the crux of the gospel that it is by grace we are saved through faith in Christ and all that he has accomplished, accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection. You and I cannot earn it. And please hear me here because this is crucial to all we have discussed this evening. You cannot earn it. You do not need to earn it. It is given to us in Jesus. Some of you need to hear that and absorb that and let that finally hit you in the right spot this evening. You do not need to earn it. You need to say yes to what is being given. You need just to come to him and accept his gift, accept him and place your trust in him. So what do we do with what we've been discussing, about, discussing tonight? For those of you wondering about the truth of the gospel that we've been discussing, let tonight be the night where the truth of the scriptures that we've read sinks in and allow God to speak to your heart about his love for you. Please listen. Please obey and allow his desire to be in right relationship with you become the reality that you begin experiencing now. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is the day of salvation. Why wait? If you don't know him as the one who came and paid the penalty for your sins and conquered sin and death, let tonight be the night where you listen to God's truth, his gospel. I pray that you will trust and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins because he is generous and he wants you in his kingdom. And like I mentioned already, he wants you, all of you, baggage, regrets, shame, whatever it may be. He wants all of you. Nothing you have done keeps him from loving you and wanting you to be his. For those of us in the room who follow Jesus, knowing that we fail at it every day, but by his grace we're able to get back up and every day is full of new mercies. I want to piggyback on the imagery of the parable that we discussed tonight. Because in Luke 10, chapter 2, or Luke 10, verse 2, excuse me, 
We read this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Instead of worrying how well off other believers are doing in the kingdom of God, or playing the comparison game the enemy tries to distract us with, let's instead seek to do two things. Number one, be laborers for Christ's harvest. Ask the Lord how he might use you this year in a special way to share your faith boldly. Many of you in this room are first-year students, and you're thinking, how would he use someone who doesn't know anybody here yet? Let me tell you, you have the best opportunity. Let him shape your identity here in a way that you've never allowed him to before. My high school years were really rough. So were my hairstyles. So those may have gone hand in hand. My senior year, I started feeling like myself. When I went to college, I was determined to be who I wanted to be. And a lot of that, and I will say it should have been more, but a lot of that was I wanted to be who Jesus wanted me to be. But if you'd known me junior year of high school into freshman year of college, you'd be like, who is this guy? And I'm not saying that my life is a great example for you here. I'm just saying there is a reality for you to be able to do this, to say, my college career is yours. My life from this point forward is yours in a way that it hasn't been before. So take me, allow me to be yours, use me as you see fit. Start it now. If you're a first-year student, if you're a returning student, start it now. There is never too late a moment. Secondly, pray for his vision for your life and college career. Be spent for the sake of the gospel being made known. You talk about him going into the, the center of the city, into the marketplace, and inviting people to the vineyard. Here, we're told that we are to go out and invite others. We're to pray for other harvesters, other laborers. Pray, invite. And that second point is pray for other laborers to join in. So pray this comes through our faithful preaching of the gospel and those in our circles coming to a saving faith in Jesus. Just think about that. And many of you are probably like, man, I'm not coming back to this place because they talk about this too much. But this is what matters most. And we're unashamed about that. Your college career spent for Christ is a force the world doesn't know what to do with. I believe college students are the answer for sending out laborers like we've never seen before. I wholeheartedly believe that. Not only that, our campus has a number of backgrounds on it. 40,000 plus students on it. Not to mention, I can't even remember like the current stat on how many international students we have. The nations are represented at UA. Imagine what you could be used as you befriend them, as you share the gospel with them faithfully, as you exhibit the gospel to them faithfully, what your impact for the kingdom could be. You may not even know it until you arrive in the Lord's Hall and say, look at all these people who came to faith because of the faithful example you set. Pray for others to be empowered and encouraged to grow in their faith and share their faith regularly. This definitely means on campus but it also may mean you praying over opportunities to go elsewhere, whether that's internationally or domestically in another city, an urban center, whatever it may be. Begin praying now. I want to share something with you, and we're going to wrap up with this. My, we have stretch goals for our leadership team this year. Um, they came up with their own. My stretch prayer goal for our ministry this year is that we're sending 15 to 20% of our students on mission this summer. And for many of you, you don't even know what that number means but it doesn't really matter what that number is other than we're praying for that many people to be willing to go. And honestly, I'm praying that the Lord supersedes our expectations because I, I believe that you are indeed a force the world will have to reckon with for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so I'm praying for that. 
But I ask you right now to maybe commit to praying for that for yourself. I know some of you have already been questioning some of these things, like, well, maybe he is calling me to do this or this or this. Maybe your career is going to take you to a different city, and you can use that as an opportunity. There are a number of ways that this works. But I'm just praying for you to have a faithful response. In light of those things, I'd like to pray over you as we close. Father, I thank you again for this evening. Lord, I thank you for everyone in this room.